My name is Joshua Ross, and welcome to the Entrepreneurship at DU podcast. The wedding industry generates $70 billion in annual revenue, and the United States is 25% of the entire wedding industry. Caroline Creedenberg, a University of Denver alum, took a class project and turned it into a thriving wedding business. If the average wedding budget is $30,000, they're not spending $10,000 of that on a wedding planner. So like, how are they doing this? Wedfully found early success as a bootstrap company generating $10,000 a month in revenue, coordinating weddings. We collected all of our, like our full payment up front from couples. So as a bootstrap company, we had used that money a long time ago. As the business was hitting its stride and growing, COVID hit. We talk about how Caroline pivoted her business to find success during COVID. She pitched on Shark Tank and she eventually sold Wedfully. Here's the interview with Caroline Creedenberg. Caroline Creedenberg, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Excited. Awesome. Well, let's jump right into it. So you graduated from the University of Denver in uh, 2017. And in less than seven years, you are an accomplished founder with a successful sale. So can you share with our audience how a graduate from an engineering school with a computer science degree decides to start a wedding business? Yeah, you know, I haven't really heard it in that timeline. Because <laughs> when you're in the thick of it, you don't feel as accomplished as maybe it looks. Um, so I, yep, studied computer science here at University of Denver. Um, and... I studied abroad the whole year, junior year. So I was gone for the full year, came back, and back then we had a club. Dynamize was the OG entrepreneurship club, and a bunch of my computer science friends had joined the club. And so it was kind of mostly a lot of business kids at the time, but they were like, hey, you should come to this meeting. There's free pizza. College kids love free food. So I showed up, and at the time they were talking about a pitch competition that was going to happen, and it was... A quarter-long competition, so at the beginning of the quarter, you pitched what your idea was, and at the end, you presented on how much progress you had made. Um, a little backstory on like why I had even said yes to the entrepreneurship club was that in my, between sophomore and junior year, I had worked at a tech startup in Kansas City, where I'm from. It was the founder was like a family friend of ours, and he requires everyone to take a personality test. I guess, of sorts. And based on the percentage match you are to the job, they'll hire you or not. So I was applying for a QA engineering role. I got a 3% match to the role. And he sat me down for lunch and was like, here are my results. Here are your results. Um, you're probably going to start a company one day. Like you're just never going to be satisfied just like doing this kind of day-to-day -day job. And so that kind of planted the seed in my head like, oh, well, I do love new, exciting things. I love change. I love like, you know, trying to tackle a problem. So maybe one day I'm thinking, you know, like 40, 50 years old, I'll like start a company. But this pitch competition was kind of intriguing. Um, and so at the time I was applying to full-time roles and I was really looking at female dominated industries because I had just come off of an internship at a big financial corporation as a software engineer. 
it was not a culture fit at all. Um, a lot of my friends was kind of like our first time having a real job. And a lot of our, my friends would go to like happy hour with their coworkers at these cute cocktail bars. And I was playing Super Mario Smash Bros and drinking like canned beer. Nothing against that. That's just not my like ideal um, scenario for like culture and where I find like, you know, joy in life. So I was kind of like, I feel like I need a bit more female influence, but I still want to be a software engineer. I still want to code. So I kind of started looking at like wedding industry, interior design, any industry that was like very female dominated and trying to get a software engineering role within that industry. And so weddings were like on the top of my mind because I was looking in that industry. There was not a lot of tech in it at the time. You had the Knot, um, Wedding Wire. Zola was like kind of starting up, but was pretty early on. And I kind of was like, well, I'll explore this space. So for that pitch competition, I was like, my idea is something in the wedding space. And then 10 weeks later, I had gone to a bunch of like wedding showcases and interviewed a bunch of vendors and couples and um, kind of landed on the first iteration of Wedfully, which at the time was called Bash and Spree, which sounds like Fashion Spree. So it's a garbage name. Um, but that I won second place at that pitch competition and then rolled that into a capstone to actually for computer science to actually build the app itself. And that was kind of how it all started, the very first iteration. Okay, so you're still in school, you have this app, you've done this capstone, and the app does what? So the original app was like, I think we called it like like your wedding planner in your pocket or something. And it was for wedding planners, actually. So it was essentially like they had papers and binders and everything was written down and nothing was like really on their phone or iPad. So the idea was to get all of that onto a device. Um, and I kind of assembled a team. We did dollar to idea or idea to dollar class. Um, and then that's where we kind of like started to build it out. But it was really just like a very simple storage app, essentially. Okay. And that was from idea for, for, from idea to first dollar sale with uh, Professor Haig. Yeah, that was the class I kind of like convinced um, my computer science um, program to let me do that as like a capstone. And so part of it was like while we had to do the business side, I had to actually develop the app during it as well. Okay. Now, walk us through from that app to Wedfully. What was that transition? What was that pivot you, that you made? Yeah, so as I was building the Wedding Planner app, um, I kind of was just really, to be completely honest, off-put by the industry. It was very like trying to get all the vendors that I was meeting with and kind of the wedding planners I was working with, their main goal was to get to the high-end wedding market, which makes sense, right? I mean, if you're doing lower-end weddings, you have to do more of them. And these people, all they have is like a Saturday, right, usually? So um, it makes more sense to try and go for like a higher dollar wedding, higher package and do less weddings. But for me, I was like, there. but there's this huge gap in the market of like, what are all these people doing who can't pay? Like a wedding planner can cost anywhere from day of coordination can be like a thousand to two thousand dollars all the way to like a full service wedding planner can be ten thousand dollars on the low end. Some charge as much as like twenty five, thirty. This is like, you know, when you're planning million dollar weddings, you're seeing them on Vogue, that kind of world. And at the time I was like, like, first of all, who's, who's having a wedding? Who has that kind of money? Like, I'm just trying to get by in college. (laughs) And who is servicing all these other weddings? Like, 
if the average wedding budget is $30,000, they're not spending 10000 of that on a wedding planner. So like, how are they doing this? And so that's where the um, Wedfully, we call it Wedfully 1.0 on my team. That's where the original Wedfully 1.0 idea came from was like, let's find a way to make the wedding planner more accessible to all couples at a lower cost by bringing it online. So it was a virtual wedding planner. So this idea was you saw this underserved market. You saw kind of this low-hanging fruit, maybe a little lower margin than yeah, the, the higher end. 100%. But you saw that nobody was uh, addressing it, and so you went after it. So you started Webfully 1.0, and then what happens? Yeah. So started that, graduated, worked on that full-time, um, was probably hitting – I'll try to give, like, revenue numbers because I think that's helpful when you're – early early stage trying to figure out if you're succeeding or not um we were probably doing about ten thousand dollars in revenue a month um so at the time I was like oh my gosh I've hit ten thousand that's amazing um but obviously bootstrapped no no outside money so it was still a grind all of that money was going straight back into the business I was still working like freelancing development and also like working odd jobs um, and COVID hit and we um, collected all of our like our full payment up front from couples. So as a bootstrap company, we had used that money a long time ago. Like these couples were planning their wedding a year plus out and they were paying us a year plus out. So all of that money was spent, gone. And people started knocking on our door being like, we canceled our wedding. Can I get a refund? And that was just a very sticky situation for lots of businesses, specifically in the wedding industry. There had been services rendered, but like the wedding hadn't happened yet. So who was in the right there? And we did not, frankly, did not have money to refund with. So I was kind of staring down the option of like, do I shut, shut it down? Which was probably the leading option at the time, just because I was feeling pretty burnt out. Like we could just couldn't really get past, like sometimes we'd hit $20,000 a month, but it was not reoccurring revenue. So very hard to always figure that out. And so I was kind of like ready to throw the towel in. Um, I was up in the mountains. This was like March. I actually got stuck in the mountains during COVID. It was like March 14th. I remember I went for a hike and I was like, what if we did like one wedding, like Zoom wedding? What if we just like reached out to Zoom, did a press release and it'll get us through this, you know, two weeks of COVID, whatever, two months that we thought it was going to be. And I was like, that's kind of a good idea. So I went home, emailed Zoom, like a random email, um, messaged like 50 plus couples on this Facebook, Colorado Weddings Facebook group I'm in, was like, hey, who wants me to live stream their wedding for free? Um, and then wrote a press release. And someone bit, someone was like, yeah, will you do my wedding? So on March 18th, I think, 28th, 18th, <laughs> not great with numbers, um, we did our first wedding and zoom agreed to like collaborate with us and so I took that and ran with it wrote a pretty good press release and it was just like perfect time perfect place perfect story and it caught on like wildfire and so it got picked up in the New York Times Vogue Denver Post um lots of podcasts like all these random blogs and people were like pounding down our door like we had thousands of inquiries of people being like can you live stream my wedding and I was like sure we'll figure it out so that's kind of how Wedfully 2.0 began was just me trying to get a press hit to keep our business alive during COVID and then it totally pivoted the business. 
That's a great story. And it just shows using that entrepreneurial mindset, right? Like looking at adversity and trying to figure out ways to sol- solve solve the problem and, and not giving up. And uh, uh, I think you also hit Zoom at the right time, right 100%. before the right before the, <laughs> the wave crashed over them. It'd be curious in June if that email would have been answered by them. Definitely not. I think we were, like I said, right place, right time. Like I say that part was lucky, but then taking the luck and running with it is where um, it kind of all came together. But no, like would they have answered their marketing at zoom.com email? Probably not. But they saw it as a marketing opportunity. And, you know, at the time they were in like every headline. They were like, Zoom this, zoom that. And so I was like, that's the obvious partner here because sure, there's plenty of other video platforms, but like, let's ride the wave that Zoom's on right now. Okay. So all of a sudden you have thousands of people contacting you. What do you do next? How do you scale this up? Um, This is a, a new frontier. I mean, you understand weddings, but these are Zoom weddings. And how do you curate this experience? So that was probably in all the journey of Wedfully, my favorite part is was learning how to scale. So I kind of just grabbed the closest people to me. Another, I guess, lucky thing was that a lot of people were getting laid off at the time from their jobs. So I had a lot of my network and people I'd worked with in the past were like, sure, why not? I'll start working with you. I'll start trying to Zoom a wedding with you. Um, and it was really honestly twofold of like taking, I was probably on... Sometimes I'll pull up my old calendar just for fun to like humble me, but I would be on calls from 7 a.m. Mountain Time until 9 p.m. Mountain Time with prospective couples, like 30 minute calls with maybe a five minute break in between. And I was just like soaking it all in, trying to hear like, well, what do they want to do? And a lot of them had these like phenomenal ideas. So a lot of our future product offerings within the live stream were just people being like, can we do this? And me being like, sure, we'll try it. Like, we'll work together to figure out how we can do it. And so that was like a huge part of it was just listening to what they wanted and the ideas they had because people who are planning their weddings, they're very creative. Like, they're having a lot of ideas. And um, if it works well, then we'll take it, put it as an offering and start charging for it. So one of the examples was like this gal was like, hey, I use Zoom for work and we use the breakout rooms. Like, could we use those to... um, do like reception tables and then I could go into each table and com- like have a conversation with, you- with each of them and I was like I don't know how we'll do that but sure yeah let's figure it out you put together a list of who and we'll figure out on the back end how to make that work that then became reception tables as our like offering so a big part of it was listening to them and then on top of that like I just had an amazing amazing team of people who like were yes people so I was a yes person and I think I modeled that to them and they were like We'll just try whatever and see if it works. And I think we were granted a lot of it was a, if you like remember back then, people were given a lot of um, leniency around how these calls went or how these things happened because it was all new territory. So like now the expectations of how it runs is like tenfold more like higher than back then. It was like anything would impress. So like we could try something, maybe stumble a little bit with it. But the end result was still like gave people a way to interact and they were like beyond themselves because they're sitting alone in their house and they're like, wow, I just got to talk to people for two hours that I haven't seen in forever and family and friends and like catch up and celebrate this couple and have emotion and have happiness. And so that gave us like a great runway to really just go experiment and have fun with it. Um, But 
I would say like, honestly, my team was rock stars. I mean, we all were clocking like 80 to 100 hours a week of work and we were having fun with it. So it didn't matter. Not sustainable. But at the time we were just like, let's figure out how to make this work. That's awesome. And also, you know what? They couldn't leave their homes anyway. So yeah. <laughs> what, what, what else? What that was else the other perk too. I had a lot of like young college grads who I'm like, mm, if this were like now they would not want to sit on like Zoom on Saturday and run a bunch of weddings. But like, what else did we have to do? Yeah, I know that makes sense. So you talked a little bit about, all right, we, we'll, we'll see how we can make this work on the back end. And that's a, that is something that a technical person says. How was, you know, you, you understood the business and the, 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 the front end and the business side. How did your technical skills help you with this business? Yeah, I think kind of twofold. One, um, externally, it gave me a lot of respect. Like people, you know, sadly, we still live in a world where like if I walk into a room and I'm young and I'm blonde and female, I might not garner the amount of respect, especially in a tech world that other people may. Um, but being able to kind of say, yeah, I studied computer science. Yeah, I worked at NASDAQ as a software engineer. Like immediately I get points that I don't have walking into a room. So that's one fold. And then internally and like personally, I think it gave me a lot of confidence to just go do and figure out like it's not I don't want to be a software engineer anymore. It's not like my, that's not my dream job. It never really was. But I saw that skill set as a means to an end. And I think having the confidence to have the understanding behind the scenes, even if I don't like I'm not the best developer in the world, I'm you know not going to spin up an app in a day. Like I still am like I have the tools to go figure it out. So I might as well try. So I think both of those made it made my journey a lot easier by having that background. Yeah, that's a good point. I um, I have a tech background as well. I'm I can't program anymore. I don't think I can configure a router anymore. But I can still architect it, and I understand how to take that business problem and you know and and address it using technology. And you can like be in the room, at least participating in the conversation. And I think just from a confidence standpoint, that's huge. Like I have friends who are non-technical founders, and like. They could go figure it out. They're smart enough. But I think the like barrier to entry of like it's just so foreign is really hard to overcome. And so not having that is really nice. <laughs> and being a technical founder, you know the proper expectations to set. And when engineers are telling you how long it's going to take, you know if that's correct or not. Yeah. It just gives you like a way more 360 view of the business instead of kind of having that blind spot. Yeah, that's that's actually a perfect way to say this, say that. So, um, as you're building this service-based business, what are some of the challenges that you had building a service-based business as opposed to a product-based? But and you, you have a little bit of a product in there, but it's usually basically using a, a third-party product. Yeah, um, a big, I mean, dealing with an emotional purchaser is very hard. Um, it can reap really great benefits and it can also really hurt you. Um, so honestly, one of the hardest parts of the business throughout it being a service-based business was like ex like managing expectations and also handling any disappointment on the back end. Like that really hurts. Like I'm a very big, I think kind of I realized through this whole journey, my superpower was building a team, culture, like all of that stuff is really where I thrived. And when you're having your team get beat up, like you know, by these very emotional purchasers, 
it really gets to them and it, you know, hurts their, like, they burn out quicker. They're like, you know, will to like go and figure things out dampers a little just because they're getting berated by people like we're just trying to figure it out right but the expectations are pretty high because it is you know society tells us one of the most important days of their lives so that's kind of that was still is and, and always will be something that's really difficult with being in the wedding industry um I think on top of that I actually think we had less problems because it wasn't an internal product like think about how many engineers Zoom has on their team. Like they have a really great open API. Like we can manip- manipulate kind of things as we need lightly, but like I didn't have to take on the financial burden of having a bunch of in-house engineers. Um, and then it just allowed us to build product in I- other areas to help improve the business. Like I always told people, we were never going to be a video conferencing platform or a live stream platform like if that was what we were going to be then we would you know be in a different realm of 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 business like there was never a need to build a live streaming platform for specifically for weddings in my opinion so I actually think it made our lives a lot easier to not have that um, stress of having to also build that product in-house just because when you are a service-based business like there's enough stress with all the other things that you have to do. So that was kind of nice. Um, I think we did get a lot of flack and still do for like using Zoom. Like to this day, people will be like, oh, you just use Zoom. And it's like, yeah, but like we figured it out and we made it really smooth. And a lot of times people had no clue we were. So like, I, I think at first I was like, oh, like I'm a technical founder. I should be, should I be building something in-house? Should I be like embarrassed that we're using an external platform? But you know, as time went on, I'm like, no, this is a way better setup for us, especially the type of business I know we're building. Like I wasn't going to build a billion dollar live streaming platform at the time. Like I knew, I knew what we had. I knew the niche we had and I knew it was amazing. And so that just didn't really affect me too much by the end. I think what you're, you're it was brilliant. You were using available products um, out on the market to, uh, to develop a business and scale your business. I mean, could you imagine if you were thinking about building a video platform with all of the equipment that was required, the yeah. bandwidth, the hosting, <laughs> the co-location, the engineers, the customer support? It would take your eye off the focus of what yeah. you were tra- the problem you were trying to solve. And we just wouldn't be able to continue to explore and iterate the way we did. I mean, we would have missed that wave. We wouldn't have had a business at all because if we had to build what we used with Zoom – like it would have taken way too long. We would have missed the wave that we caught early on. So I think that's great. And I think our team was really good and kind of the magic sauce we had was like, you know, there's so much technology that exists, hardware, software right now that you can tap into and customize and make it really work. So we took like so many different existing pieces of software and hardware and like the way we stitched it all together to make the operation work was like what we were really good at. I tell my students all the time, I call it Frankensteining. Yeah. Like, especially with your MVP, go and Frankenstein something. Don't, yeah. don't go out and build a bunch of stuff. I mean, yeah. once you hit a scale, yeah. then go build it. Like we hit a scale where we had to go then build internal software that we'll talk about in a little. But like up until then, it was working great. And we were making a lot of money on it. And we were proofing the concept and really solidifying what we needed to build. Okay, so I want to pull on that thread for our audience. When you're, you've taken off, you're, you're coming out, in COVID, coming out of COVID, 
How many weddings were you doing a month in the peak season? Obviously, there is, it's a seasonality business as well. Yeah. Um, peak season, we were doing about 80 to 100 a month. Um, so we were cranking through them at the time. So how many is that a day? Because you're, you're not doing them maybe seven days a week, but it's, I'm guessing Saturday is still the most yeah. popular day. Okay. So with that, I want, I want to pivot a little bit and, and talk about this event that happened on November 21st. You appeared on Shark Tank. Uh, so November, <laughs> sorry, November 2021, Caroline Creedenberg went on Shark Tank with Wedfully. And I know there's certain things you can't reveal about Shark Tanks, but I'm going to ask a number of questions and hopefully you can answer them to the best of your ability without uh, legal getting involved. Um, <laughs> so first of all, will you walk us through the application and acceptance process for uh, Shark Tank? And then also, how long is the gap between you when you actually film your picture actually in the Shark Tank and when it actually aired in November? Yeah, so the timeline's a little fuzzy because <laughs> we were so busy. I never applied for Shark Tank. I think someone on my team did, but none of them remember applying. So that part is a little fuzzy. Um, but we got an email from casting in February of 2021 very vague, just being like, at first I thought it was spam. It was like, hey, we'd love to get on a call with you for this season of Shark Tank. And I was like, okay, sure. That sounds hilarious. Let's do it. Like at that point, it was just so unrealistic seeming. And like, also I feel like everyone wants to be on Shark Tank who has a business or like thinks it's going to be like the end all be all change to their business. So I was like, this is, has to be a joke. Like, sure. I'll get on a call with casting. Um, and so casting pushed us along, pushed Wedfully along after that call to um, the application process, which is pretty rigorous. It's like multiple, I don't know, like 20, 30, 40 pages of just kind of like stories about your business, how you built it, like everything throughout your journey. So kind of slowly filled that out as I had time because um, I wasn't going to like drop the opportunity, but I also was still in my head like, I'm not going to pour a lot of time and energy into this because it's just not realistic that we're going to get on. And then um, that turned into you like get to this stage of the application process where they ask for a video. And it's essentially like a 10 minute video that they want explaining your business. Um, and I had gotten advice from someone I knew who had been on Shark Tank in the past that like just be goofy, have fun with it, really don't take it too seriously because they're not looking for business viability they're looking for like tv people and so um luckily I have like we have videographers on our team because we're a live streaming company and so we I was able to film like one day I was like all right leadership team clear your calendars everyone like we're working on this google doc like up until that day just like fill in what you think the script should be and then we're all going to meet at this one gal's house and we're going to film and I'm going to bring a wedding dress and I'm going to wear skis and we're going to ski down a mountain in a wedding dress and then we're gonna talk about the business like let's just be goofy so the video like started with me entering on skis in a wedding dress with like the dun, 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 music playing and then just like the whole time like we were just all having so much fun and like they were feeding me lines to say and it was like the weirdest video ever um and then our videographer put in like all these weird noises and like animations and like the video is just a hysterical 10 minute long video of like us talking, like not us, but me talking about the business. <laughs> and so we sent that in. At this point, I'm like still kind of like, let's just have fun with this. And then I got the call and it was like, hey, like you've been picked to go on Shark Tank. Um, 
but it was still four. After the video, you still you start meeting with a producer like every other week. You have your own producer for the whole time and they wither the group down. So I don't know. They probably start with like 300 entrepreneurs and then by air like filming date, they have like 100. So each week I'd like go into the meeting and they'd be like, you've made it to the next round or you haven't. And then I started crafting my pitch early on. So this was probably like May. And then we got um, film date was July. I think we I think I only got it like a month before, but you're pretty prepared because you've been like working with the producer the whole time. Um, they kind of line you up with like 10 entrepreneurs throughout the day. I got really lucky and drew like the first filming spot um, because otherwise you have to sit around as an anxious ball of nerves for the whole day waiting to get called. So 4 a.m. wake up call, got hair and makeup done there. They treated you like a celebrity for like maybe three hours. Um, I was actually in the tank like filming for an hour and a half, which a lot of people don't know because it gets cut down to like seven minutes. Um, and then they literally are like, all right, see you later. Your chopped liver will tell you whether or not you're going to air. So the process was kind of insane. And the whole time I was just like, there's just no chance that this is happening. This doesn't happen. So I really just treated it as like this fun event. And I feel like that made it so much better for me. You came out of the tank securing a $200,000 investment from Robert Hershevec. So for uh, I believe that was was it ten percent equity? Yes. So that valued your, your valued your company at two million dollars. So can you tell us about that investment and what eventually transpired? Are you allowed to talk about that? Not a ton in depth, but I can tell you that how it works is you do a handshake deal on TV. Um, to make it actually authentic, they don't give the sharks any information about you or your business ahead of time. So even though I wasn't there for an hour and a half, like think about a regular investment deal, they still spend like hours scrutinizing your data room and like looking at everything. So to be fair to the sharks, then after you've um, pitched, they then like set you up with their representative and you have to do like essentially a whole data room for them. And then they'll review the data. During our negotiation process behind the scenes, we both just kind of amicably was like, this isn't the best setup for either of us um, and kind of walked away in like very good spirits with each other. But so I actually did not end up going through with the deal after um, I filmed. How did it help Wedfully in terms of from a, a marketing perspective? Um, I mean, there's really nothing like that you can get like that without paying a bunch of money. So the amount of eyeballs that we got from the show was just insane and for us, it was a really good high funnel um, option just because a lot of people, we obviously had a difficult product. Like people who, you know, I have a, a gal I know who sells deodorant. Like everyone uses deodorant and it's like an under $20 purchase. So that's like a prime product where you're going to just like right as the product, right as the episode airs, you're going to like see all this money flow in and like all these purchases because it's such like a low, low purchasing and everyone uses it. Whereas ours was like very specific of like, you have to be getting married um, or like, you know, engaged, planning a wedding. And our packages are like 800 to $1,800. So it's not like a small investment. So it's not like they're going to like hit purchase as the show's airing, although some people did, which is still crazy to me. But our funnel filled up so much. I mean, just like the amount of people that were reaching out was insane. And then the thing that like you don't really realize while you're going through it 
is this show re-airs. Like my episode re-airs probably once a quarter and I'll just like get all this bombardment of people reaching out. Um, so it's kind of, I always say the gift that keeps on giving, but I mean, there's just, it's unpre- like, there's no other thing out there. Like when we were getting ready to pitch, like you meet with, you know, they're trying to hype you up and the guy put it in a very good way. He was like, this is the Super Bowl of entrepreneurship. And I was like, okay, that's like a fair point. I don't love that. You're telling me that as I'm walking down the you know aisle to go present, but it's true, right? I mean, the opportunity is insane to just see, have that many people getting eyeballs on your offering. It might have worked out better that you didn't give up 10% of your company because in August 2023, you sold Wedfully to Wedgwood Wedding and Events. And um, I'm guessing and I'm just assuming you were the sole shareholder of the company when you when you made the sale. Walk us through the acquisition, how it came about, um, because you guys were the the leading in wedding streaming and Wedgwood is the nation's largest wedding venue provider. So on paper, logically, it makes sense. But why did it make sense to you? Yeah. So um, in. So reaping the benefits of Shark Tank, um, this couple had seen us on Shark Tank and booked a wedding. At the time, we were offering this in-person package where we go in person with like a professional videographer and it's a little bit souped up package um, from our old one. It was a package we were testing and this couple was getting married in Denver at a Wedgwood Weddings venue location. And so I had kind of heard about Wedgwood Weddings in the past. Um... We had done a bunch of weddings there, but I had not connected the dots that they were all like one conglomerate. And so I went to try and kind of talk to them. I like went and worked the wedding as the videographer to try and talk to them about a partnership. So that's kind of how it all started was like I just wanted a more steady stream of business um, because, you know, having a consumer facing business can be hard. And so having a venue partnership would maybe guarantee us a certain amount of weddings each month and we could have stronger predictions, financial predictions and stuff around that. So that was kind of the goal going in. And as we kind of started negotiating with them, um, we struck a deal to like do a partnership in the Colorado region. And we were working a bunch of weddings there. I was kind of, you know, talking to the regional manager a bunch. And it kind of struck me that a lot of the struggles that they were running into we had already experienced um, specifically going back to kind of um, early live streaming days. We had just like used people, which I think a lot of startups do to kind of fuel the growth. So I would like hire coordinators and be like, you're working this wedding. If we had 35 weddings in one day, they can each do three weddings. Like we needed sheer amounts of people and I wanted to have them be W2 to be fair to them. So we were like bleeding cash during um, off season. And so I had to do layoffs and restructure the whole business. And a big part of that was building this internal technology that allowed us to scale with a part-time team without bleeding cash in the off season. And they were kind of running into a lot of issues there as well. And they were looking to build this um, essentially like a digital portal for their couples. And it was very similar to what I had built for our couples. And so then the conversation kind of took a turn away from the live stream partnership, which was still functioning and went towards kind of this like need for this software we had built. Um, And at the time I was pretty burnt out. Um, 
you know, it had been a long three years with a lot of really fun wins, but I had also been working an insane amount of time. I was kind of ready to like have a little bit of a life back and the conversations kind of kept progressing. And for me, I was kind of like, I, so I had raised about $300,000 between 2020 and the sale. So while I was the sole like board member and decision maker, I still did have investors that I wanted to make whole. So, but because I hadn't taken on a lot of money, like I didn't need to sell for multiple, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like I could sell for something, set myself up for like a really good success and also like make, you know, keep good relationships with my investors, make them whole, like all of that. So it kind of just based on my stage of life and being able to listen to like what I needed and what my team was kind of needing, it just made the most sense to pursue that opportunity. So what did you learn through this acquisition process? I mean, it, it, it takes some time. There's the due diligence. It is kind of consummated in a marriage, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I learned a lot. That was um, a very humbling experience and also... I kind of had a lot of fun with it. It was like I had, you know, scaled the company, done a lot of stuff that were new to me. And so it was fun to kind of, you know, here was another new thing I could go explore. Um, And so, you know, I thought it would take maybe a couple months. I was like so naive. I remember in May of 2022, we started having the conversations and I was like, oh, like by fall, I'll be like you know, this will be done, wrapped up, completed. Um, But I just learned like a lot throughout that experience of like, it's going to go through. It's not. I better just turn back and keep working on the business. Oh, wait, it's back on the table. Now it's off the table. Like a lot of that happens. I think the rule that like someone told me while I was going through it was, you know, three strikes are allowed before the deal will like completely fall apart. Um, So it was just like a good lesson in Also making sure that like I always used the phrase when I was meeting with the CEO of Wedgwood Weddings a lot like you don't want um, organ failure like it's kind of a gruesome analogy but like you want to make sure too that like even though I am burnt out and it is an exciting opportunity like it needs to be the right fit for me and my team and for the product and like everything so you know a lot of those conversations were also hard to have with myself around like, am I blinded because it's like such a fun idea to sell your company or is it actually the best next step for the company? So that was, it was like definitely also a very um, transformative time for me personally of like, it was not something I could force into action. Like a lot of other things I can take the reins and fully control them, but this was like not like that. So I had to really like learn to sit in the shit and just like not, get too ahead of myself with it. Well, first, congratulations on a successful Thank sale. You. That is uh, very impressive. Um, all right, so so what's next for you? Right now I'm trying to just like learn to slow down and embrace this stage for what it is. Um, I have surprisingly adapted pretty well to it. <laughs> like I'm really good at being a nine to fiver now. Um, And the challenge that's in front of me is really exciting. So I try not to like, you know, plan my future too much, but I think I want to like sit here and see what this is all about. It's only been, you know, I don't know, like five months, six months maybe. Um, 
I know, though, like, I'll go do something again just because I miss and will always miss. Like, we always used to say as a team, like, we captured lightning in a bottle. And, like, having that feeling, I don't think you'll, like, that's something that you can never get in what I'm doing right now. So I think I'll probably eventually start something again. I just, I never want to force forced into being so I'm kind of just staying open and um trying to slow down and sit in the current and enjoy it so uh my last question for you what advice do you give your 18 year old self oh gosh um definitely studying computer science (laughs) um I would just say like learn to like slow down a little bit personally and like not force things into being um, go after them as soon as you see the opportunity. But I think younger Caroline was a lot more easily heightened by things and like just embracing life as it, as it happens is really important. And like the biggest lesson I've learned through all of this is just like, it's okay to sit in the shit and like not always be moving forward, be super happy. Like it's okay to embrace the negative, the change, the like, you know, unknown, the ambiguity of life. And that will make you a better person, a better entrepreneur, like all around just life easier for you. That is wonderful advice. Caroline, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The Entrepreneurship at DU podcast was recorded in Marjorie Reed Hall on the University of Denver campus. You can find us on Instagram at DU Entrepreneur, on Twitter X at DU underscore Entrepreneur, and on Facebook at Entrepreneurship at DU. This episode was engineered, edited, and produced by Sophia Holt. Entrepreneurship at DU is part of the Daniels College of Business, which has its own podcast. Check out Voices of Experience wherever you get your podcasts.